I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, can Brian Roberts, boss of Comcast, Prove the critics wrong about the acquisition of Sky. He has a record of making acquisitions and of making them look smart in retrospect. And Money Talks tests Chinese Baijiu, the world's most popular liquor. I'm trying to explore the flavors and get past the 52% alcohol. But first, you might have thought of big oil as a sunset industry. Scientists tell us again and again that time is running out to limit carbon emissions, and the most obvious way to do that is to cut the burning of fossil fuels. So some oil companies are investing heavily in renewables. The biggest of all the oil majors, however, ExxonMobil, is taking a different approach. It's still betting heavily on oil and gas. Charlotte Howard, The Economist's energy and commodities editor, has been looking at the company and talking to its chief executive, Darren Woods. She joins me on the phone from New York now. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Simon. Charlotte, first of all, I understand that for this story, you you travelled to Latin America, to quite a small country, Guyana. How come? Guyana is an interesting country. It's just east of Venezuela. It's home to only 750,000 people, which is far fewer people than live even in the New York borough of Brooklyn. And it is the site of the biggest oil discovery in uh, many years. In 2015, ExxonMobil found oil offshore of Guyana, and they've continued to make a series of discoveries there. And one might think in 2019 that we were done finding new sources of oil around the world. And Guyana is an example of how Exxon continues to look for new sources of oil and develop them. It's not just that we thought perhaps we were done with new sources of oil. Perhaps we thought also we were done with oil companies investing presumably billions of dollars in looking for it in ever more remote places. So there's been an interesting development. 2014 saw the crash in oil prices, in part precipitated by booming production in American shale. And there was a cutoff in exploration. Companies were trying to shore up their balance sheets. They weren't spending as much time or money looking for new sources of oil. And there were some who, hopeful, in sort of an optimistic way, maybe this marks the beginning of a change for the oil industry. They're going to focus on cash flow, not going to think about new sources as aggressively. And I don't think that's really the case. You see Exxon leading the pack in terms of looking for new sources of production and with really ambitious plans to scale up production. They want to grow production by 25% by 2025 over 2017 levels. And so the reason they're doing this is because they anticipate that oil demand will continue to rise. And is that because they think the scientists and the International Panel on Climate Change and so on are actually wrong about the impact of carbon emissions on global warming or that they think that regardless of that, the world's going to keep on with existing policies? 
So one thing that's a change from the 1990s, for instance, is that the bosses of the big oil companies all support the Paris Climate Agreement. They support its goals to keep the rise in global temperatures to well below two degrees Celsius. The difference is that ExxonMobil doesn't think that the world will meet those goals. So the population continues to grow, particularly in Asia, incomes continue to rise, and they think that that growing population, those rising incomes, will offset any increase in energy efficiency or the deployment of electric cars, et cetera, that the world won't be sufficiently aggressive on carbon reduction to meet those Paris goals, and so therefore oil demand will keep rising. Now, I suppose ExxonMobil has had what you might call a, a checkered history from its origins as a sort of grandson of Standard Oil and all the way through the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska in 1989. I'm sure you would expect environmental campaigners to be having a go at ExxonMobil. I, I suppose that's their job. But what about institutional investors, the big investment funds? Are they attaching conditions and caveats to their investments in, in ExxonMobil? So the institutional investors have become much more organized in dealing with oil companies in general, and they're starting to have a real impact. So in December, Royal Dutch Shell announced that it would have the ambition to cut its carbon emissions by half by 2050 with shorter-term targets to reduce the emissions intensity of its product. Climate activists have also been successful through institutional investors in forcing BP to announce just last week that it would disclose the risks of climate change more plainly. But there's quite a lot of variation across the industry in how different investors think about this. So yes, institutional investors are more vocal, but there are plenty of investors who are perfectly happy to to invest in oil majors because they have very reliable dividends. They play a sizable role in passively managed indices. It's not as if investors are about to divest from oil en masse, though there are some who've made announcements. But in general, it's very different than coal. People will continue to invest in big oil companies for some time. So not environmental campaigners, not institutional investors, and not government policy. None of these is going to affect ExxonMobil's strategy in the short to medium term. They face a shareholder resolution later this year that, if passed, would force them to make the same kind of commitment that Shell announced in December. The trick is, if you look closely at what Shell announced, it allows Shell to continue to produce more oil and gas so long as it also increases production of energy from renewable sources or offsets its increase with reforestation efforts, for instance. But it's not an absolute decrease in carbon emissions. So anything short of an absolute decrease in carbon emissions is not actually compatible with the Paris goals. So I think that it's worth being clear-eyed about what green activists in the form of investors can achieve and what they can't achieve. This really comes down to governments and to societies, whether they are willing through regulation to set a high price for carbon or take other measures that would force world companies to change how they do business. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. On February the 12th, The Economist is hosting a summit called Investing for Impact in New York. For 15% off tickets, go to impactinvesting.economist.com and quote Econ Radio. Next to the world of pay television. 
It's three months now since Comcast, an American giant of the business, completed the acquisition for $40 billion of Sky Television, the successor to a firm that Rupert Murdoch bought back in 1989. At the time, Mr Murdoch was thought to have wildly overpaid. And 30 years on, Brian Roberts, Comcast's boss, faces similar doubts, which have afflicted his company's share price. So is Sky the limit for Comcast? To discuss that question, I'm joined by Gadi Epstein, The Economist media editor. Hello, Gadi. Hello, Simon. First, could you fill us in a bit on the, the history of Comcast? Where does it come from? So it started out as a regional player. Brian Roberts' dad, Ralph, started the company. And it was Brian who took over as president in about 30 years ago, 1990. And acquisition by acquisition turned it into the country's largest cable and broadband provider, America's largest. And he did that with some bold acquisitions, including ones that looked kind of silly expensive at the time. So he has a record of doing this, this kind of deal? Yeah, he has a record of, of making acquisitions and of making them look smart in retrospect. In 2002, that was the big one that really made Comcast a national force in cable and broadband. They bought AT&T's broadband business. That was a $72 billion deal. And he made it look uh, a bargain within a couple of years, improving margins dramatically. And then in 2009 to 2011, he was basically completing a transaction to, to buy NBC Universal at a value of $30 billion that at first some analysts thought was laughably high. And now it's one of the best parts of the business in terms of how fast it's growing and you couldn't have it for, for twice that price. Nevertheless, looking at Sky, one would have thought it's not a dinosaur business, but one whose prospects don't look that good. Surely the future is in streaming, not in satellite television. Right. There is some truth to that. I would think that the mistake that analysts in the U.S. make looking at Sky is that they think it's a direct analog to the American satellite dish companies, which are doing quite poorly. DirecTV lost another 400,000 customers in the last quarter. They've lost nearly 2 million in less than two years of their base, of their peak about 21 million uh, from two years ago. That's AT&T. They bought DirecTV in 2015 in what turns out to have been the peak of the market. And Dish, the other major American satellite provider, has lost like 4 million customers in four years. So it looks really bad. The differences are, are pretty stark, though, between Sky and these companies. One, Sky is not just a satellite business. It also sells broadband. It sells a streaming service, now TV. The other big difference is the penetration of the market. Now, in Britain, Sky is starting to lose some customers, satellite customers, not overall. The difference is that in the rest of their markets, especially Italy and Germany, the major markets where they're selling pay TV into, there's a tons of room for growth. There's, in America, it's like 80% of households have pay TV. But in Sky's markets overall, it's just one in three homes. There's a risk, though, isn't it, that as Sky becomes a direct competitor to some of the other big firms, it will start losing content. That is a big risk. So Disney, which is getting much of Fox, and which bid against Comcast for Sky, is starting its own direct-to-consumer service by the end of the year. And they are already pulling content from Netflix in America and around the world. They could very likely pull content from Sky as well. And Disney content, Fox content, and also Warner Brothers and HBO content make up a big part of the entertainment offer for Sky. And Warner Brothers and HBO are owned by AT&T, which has its own direct-to-consumer ambitions. So they could also pull some of their content. So those are big risks for Sky, and there are a couple ways they're going to mitigate them. One is they're probably still going to partner with those companies because they have 24 million customers in Europe. 
a great base from which to sell a new direct consumer service. Netflix is integrating with Sky uh, and is being sold through Sky, and I could see that happening with them. The other is as they pay less money for licenses, assuming they drop some of the entertainment they sell to Sky, as Sky pays less money for that content, they can then use those savings to make their own content. They do produce their own shows, which is another kind of differentiation from the American satellite companies. One sees the business now as being driven by what you might call the Netflix effect, that it's all about streaming going into the future. But you're saying that's not necessarily the way it will be. Well, I think there will be quite a bit of streaming, and I think Sky will be a part of that with Now TV. But the key is that everybody says they want to take on Netflix, right? Or people talk about these companies, investors, analysts. What's your Netflix strategy? And I think it would be exciting if Comcast were to say, we're going to take on Netflix and be a global player. But I talked to Barry Diller, who has worked with Brian Roberts and been at odds with him at times over the years. He's the boss of Interactive Corp in New York, um, media and digital company, longtime mogul. He worked for Rupert Murdoch years ago. And he was talking about chasing Netflix as such silliness. He says it's a fool's game. And he says, Brian Roberts is much smarter than that. He's ambitious, but he's no fool. Gary Epstein, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, I've travelled out of the studio to come to London's Chinatown, which is all decked out for the Chinese New Year festivities. Red paper lanterns are hanging from every building and lamppost. To join in the celebrations, I'm going to buy a bottle of Baijiu, a traditional alcoholic drink many consume around this time of year. It's a drink that many outside of China may never have heard of, but it is, in fact, the most drunk spirit on the planet. I'm back in the studio where I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Ketna Patel and Jason Palmer, who's host of our daily podcast, The Intelligence. And they are kindly going to sample with me this bottle we have bought of Lujo Laojo Tucho Baijiu. Certainly fragrant. And the bit that really worries me, because I have had Baijiu before, is it says it leaves a persistent aftertaste. <clears throat> it's quite harsh on the throat. I'm finding it. It's, not, it's warm in the stomach. Jason, you've lost the capability of speech. I'm, I'm this trying, is bad for a podcast host. I'm, I'm trying to explore the flavors and get past the 52% alcohol. It just reminds me a bit of my experiences siphoning petrol in my youth. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Come on. <laughs> it's certainly better than the, uh, the last time I tried Baijiu. The ingredients, it just says sorghum, wheat, and water. Maybe it's the sorghum. Uh, yes, but we have to talk about the, uh, the terroir of the, of the sorghum. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> the sorghum. Well, th- th- thank you all very much, tasting panel. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy Year, New Year. <laughs> well, for a more sober assessment of Baijiu's prospects, I'm joined on the line from Beijing by James Miles, The Economist's China editor. Hello, James. Hi, Simon. So firstly, what exactly is Baijiu? What, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a spirit that's often about 50% alcohol, and it involves distilling sorghum in a very special way. Uh, huge piles of the grain are accumulated and then put in jars which are buried or into pits uh, where they remain for weeks or months until they're fermented. Into this concoction is put a yeast mixture, which the makers of Baijiu 
place great store by because it's this mixture which gives each particular brand of baijiu its very distinctive taste. I know that it's a sort of ubiquitous at Chinese banquets that you're always given glasses of baijiu to, to toast, but how popular is it among ordinary Chinese? Hugely popular. This is the most commonly drunk spirit on earth. And it's uh, remarkable that outside China, few people have even heard of it, let alone drunk the stuff. But it's ubiquitous at any social gathering, um, any banquet uh, with officials or business colleagues, the baijiu will come out. And it's really not so much a matter of savouring the taste of it, but really getting liquored up and endless toasting is very much part of the ritual of enjoyable feasting in in China. Who are the um, big names in this business? And is it really possible that Baijiu might go global, a bit like tequila or vodka? Well, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, The most famous name and by far the biggest brand is Guizhou Motai, uh, which has a history likes to remember at any rate one very important point in its history, I should say, which was in 1915 when it came out at the at an exposition in San Francisco. And a big jar of this particular baijiu was knocked over by the Chinese exhibitors, whether on purpose or accidentally is not entirely clear. But the aroma of it is said to have so attracted the judges that they gave it a top prize. That particular baijiu um, is universally known across China, but each locality has uh, has its own favourites. There's one here in Beijing called Arguato, which, unlike the one I just mentioned, is extremely cheap. So, so these things vary from hundreds of dollars for one bottle to just a, a couple. Here in Beijing, the local tipple is often a very, very cheap one, uh, but also remarkably good. Making this a global product is going, is going to be very, very difficult. What they're trying to do is encourage foreigners to like this by mixing it with other flavors and, and encouraging its use in cocktails. But it's going to be tough. This is a, a drink that is associated even in China with sort of manly ritual. It's not a trendy young thing to be doing. So if it has that image, even in China, it's going to be difficult to spread it abroad. Indeed, James, and I hope you don't bring back a, a taste for Guizhou Motai to, to London. In Soho, it's going at £220 a bottle. Oh, gosh. But thank you very much, James. <laughs> thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks, which wishes you all a very happy Year of the Pig. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not think about a subscription available at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.